Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Wir von Enterprise Rent a Car passen unsere Mobilitätslösungen an Ihre geschäftlichen Anforderungen an, wie auch immer diese aussehen mögen. Ob Sie nun stundenweise Autos für Ihr Verkaufsteam brauchen, Wochen-, Monats- oder Jahreweise, Transporter für die Auslieferung Ihrer Produkte oder eine Flotte von Ersatzfahrzeugen für den Fall, dass Ihre Kunden Bedarf haben, Enterprise Rent a Car hat alles, was Sie benötigen. Und mit mehr Filialen an mehr Standorten auf der ganzen Welt sind wir überall dort, wo Sie uns suchen. Bei Enterprise.de finden Sie alles, was Sie brauchen. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Mosley and welcome to my new BBC Radio 4 podcast series, Stay Young. In each episode, I'll explore one simple, scientifically proven thing you can do to rejuvenate yourself from the inside out. Which will you try? Maybe a slice of mango to reduce your wrinkles. Mm, delicious. Or learning something new to stay sharp. Hi, okay. How about lifting some weights to protect your muscles against the ravages of time? That was quite tough. To hear all about how to stay young, subscribe to the series wherever you get your podcasts. Who is your pick for the all-time greatest African midfielder? He's the most naturally talented player that I've played with. See if your choice made the list on Match of the Day Africa Top 10 from the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. I've been going away for years now, back to Africa, Asia, even the Arctic. But I guess when I first went away, communication was really tough for you. It was, yeah, because I never heard anything from you for couple of weeks and you know so you think your mind go into overdrive and you think what's happened i do love my mum and it's probably fair to say i'm a bit of a mummy's boy we talk pretty much every day regardless where i am in the world and that's in part because our ability to chat has been enabled by technological leaps and bounds in telecommunications i've obviously never been able to give her a hug though when I'm thousands of miles away in a remote tropical forest somewhere. But we could be on the edge of a new frontier where remote touch might just be possible. I'm Ben Garrett, Professor of Evolutionary Biology at the University of East Anglia. I specialise in how our group in the animal kingdom has evolved and adapted over time. I'm fascinated by how the world around us has shaped us and how we interact with our surrounding environments. At the very forefront of this are our senses, that collective of sight, smell, taste, hearing and touch. In this series, I want to find out not only how our senses allow us to understand and explore what's around us, but how we might borrow from nature and harness and develop technologies and maybe even redefine what it means to see, hear and feel along the way. It's an episode of some wholesome and some thorny topics though. We'll cover everything from finding out whether I can virtually hug my mum right through to the slippery slope of teledildonics and what that might mean for the future of sex. Developing while we are still embryos and long before our sense of sight develops, for example, touch allows us 
to feel a cold morning breeze on our cheeks, the delicate touch of a loved one taking our hand, or the unexpected painful pinch from a trusted friend and colleague. So I'm about to head into a lab, lab 3B17 apparently, it says EEG study. Quite interested to see how this works, never had an EEG before. We're going to be looking at what the brain is doing when you touch things, quite simply. I've come to see Gilly Forrester, Professor of Comparative Cognition at the University of Sussex, to take part in an EEG, or an electroencephalogram. Gilly, I feel really conscious right now because I'm sitting in this little booth with a whole bunch of electrodes attached to my head in the special hat that I've got, and every time I do anything... There's a screen, a real-time screen in front of me, with a whole bunch of lines full of squiggles. By associating electrodes with different parts of my brain, the computer in front of me will give me a readout of my neural activity. First, we can look at, actually, the physical response you have to touch. All right, so I'm just doing a gentle stroke on the back of Ben's right hand, and what we're seeing is that every other electrode on that stream just slightly higher in amplitude and you can also see that they're getting bigger every time the touch happens so there's a response there from Ben's brain. The touch response that we can get from this kind of gentle and may I say pleasant touch (laughs) versus a pain touch is that we saw those lovely alpha waves earlier they were really rhythmic um, they're quite large in amplitude, and they're, they're kind of little rolling hills with peaks and troughs. But when you're receiving a touch response, they actually decrease. Well, pain touch has been found uh, to influence a different kind of oscillation, a different kind of rhythmic brain state. I'm just going to have to put some caveats here. I've got a safe word. Let's say, uh, let's, let's say snowman. Oh, um, well, we're seeing more than I thought we would. Now, we need to take into consideration that if this was an actual study, we would do many, many trials, averaging them all together so that we have a really good understanding of, of what is the rhythm of the brain. I think what's super interesting is that you don't actually have to be physically touched for your brain to still experience a touch. So, for example, if I get you to just imagine being touched, your somatosensory bit of your brain, the bit that deals with processing the physical attributes of of whatever's touching you, whether it be an object or another person, is still going to fire. It's still going to process that information. And this is the response we would expect. So the idling of the brain uh, that's normally there actually decreases when we're being physically touched, but also when we imagine being touched or we watch others be touched. That was really nice because we all know that our brains are constantly busy interpreting the world around us. But to actually see the different types of electrical output based on the way I was touched, and actually even thinking about touch really surprised me, actually.
Picture the scene. You turn a corner and one of the people you care about most is unexpectedly there, walking towards you. It's been so long since you saw one another. You smile, they smile. You open your arms to embrace and you hug. That reassuring feeling runs through you as a sense of comfort, warmth and love floods through your system. In this one simple act of touch, you feel elated, lifted and so much happier for it. But could touch be more than just electrodes firing off in your brain? How does it trigger the release of endorphins? I chatted to someone who I knew would have the answers. Professor Michael Bannasey is a social neuroscientist at the School of Psychological Science at the University of Bristol. Michael, when I walked in and we said hello to one another, we, we shook hands. And I felt you shake my hand, vice versa. But I find it quite hard to explain then what happened. I felt you shake my hand in my hand, but obviously there's a whole lot going on behind the scenes there. Can you talk us through the the step-by-step guide of of how touch actually works? The touch is a sense that we engage with all day long, um, but we don't often stop to think about it. And when we do something as simple as shake our hands, we've got receptors in our skin that are picking up on those signals. And then they're, they're sending signals up to the brain, to a part of the brain called the thalamus, which is almost like, I suppose, the the mailroom for information coming from touch. And one of the main areas is the somatosensory cortex, which is a part of the brain a few centimetres up from your ear, effectively, a bit where your headband might sit if you were wearing headphones. It's very much the hub for tactile experience in the brain. But if I'm happy or sad or scared or aroused in, in various ways, then my sense of touch almost alters what's going on there that's not simply a a cause and effect and and neurons kicking off and and responding to pressure for example yeah it's absolutely true that's the thing with with touch it's it's not just a sensory experience it's layered with emotions as well it's layered with past experience history that we bring to it this really reflects the fact that touch is complex it's not just senses Um, it has this additional layer of emotions behind it as well I always think I'm quite complex with my relationship with touch. I, I'm not very touchy-feely with most people, and yet when someone's within my my safe zone emotionally, then I'm quite tactile. I'm quite touchy-feely person. But I also, like many of us, I assume, it, it soothes me. It feels good. It feels nice to have a hug. Yeah, so often when we, we think about supportive touch, this can be connected to... You know, activity both in the brain, but it's also connected then to more hormonal release that comes with touch that we find pleasant or soothing. And the types of hormones that are often involved are things like oxytocin. So oxytocin is a hormone that's involved in feelings of calmness, also in feelings of bonding. What does it do to us individually and I guess societally if we're, if we're not hugging, we're not shaking hands, we're not cuddling as much as we were maybe before? Yes, yeah, so when we're not touching, there's two different ways to look at that. There's extreme tactile isolation. So you might think about someone who's completely deprived of touch and that's been shown um, to have very negative outcomes. So from people who are more touch hungry may have greater feelings of loneliness. Um, they may have greater levels of anxiety and, and mental health outcomes connected to that. Michael has helped show us the internal chemistry of touch and how it releases endorphins that make us feel good. He's also showed us how the effects of social isolation can really be damaging for our health. And this isn't a uniquely human trait. It goes back a long way to before we were even humans. We can see touch dependency in our nearest living relatives. 
I mean, I've studied um, great apes for a long time and in any setting I see them, touch plays an incredibly important part in their social life and how they connect with one another. Dr Zanna Clay is Associate Professor in the Department of Psychology at Durham University. Um, it's really the primary form of social contact that they have. Zanna's work specialises in primates. It's something we both have in common and something both of us have had the immense privilege to observe in the wild. In a given day when you're doing field work, it's, as you know, it's really hard work. You, you're following these apes through the forest. Suddenly, in the middle of the day, they'll just all decide to sit down, chill out as a group, groom, play, rest together... And it's just this wonderful moment where they're connected. But a big part of touch for these non-human primates, the, the chimps, the bonobos, the gorillas and, and other social species, is conflict resolution as mm -hmm. well. I, I can remember chimps especially kicking off and fighting over the most minor things sometimes, but very often it was resolved very quickly mm -hmm. with a hug, with a touch, with, with mm -hmm. some sort of physical bond. After fights happen, fights inevitably do happen, bonobos have them too, Touch is the primary form of, of how they comfort and reassure each other. And it can be incredibly fast. So it, it may only take someone who's in a complete panic and running around screaming. All it takes is someone to approach, put their hand on the shoulder, and it can almost completely stop the screaming. And it just shows how powerful that action is. We're much more constrained, and I think it's actually rather sad that, you know, culturally we've lost a lot of that willingness to engage physically with each other because we're worried about what it's going to do but actually what we now know is that we need it very much to have well-being more than just acting as a bit of a feel-good factor a good hug is fundamentally important to us as a social species and has featured heavily in our evolutionary journey for millions of years but we are finding ever more expansive ways to communicate using touch the pandemic fast-tracked our use of new technologies and saw us developing more three-dimensional relationships online. But it's also part of a bigger sea of change around exploring digital intimacy and remote touch. For Mum and Me, technological advancements have really changed the ways we're able to communicate. A whole realm of new technology is out there that could replicate the feeling of touch. One of those particular things is a haptic bracelet. It looks just like your standard friendship bracelet or watch. The device works through two people sending remote touches to each other via vibrations. These are felt on the other wearer's wrist. Vibrations can be sent to each other anywhere in the world as long as the bracelet is connected via Bluetooth to a phone. I've been going away for years now, back to Africa, Asia, even the Arctic, but... I guess when I first went away, communication was really tough for you. It was, yeah, because I never heard anything from you for a couple of weeks. And, you know, so you think your mind go into overdrive and you think, what's happened? You know, and especially in the jungle and something like that. That's horrible. I remember sending you letters where every few weeks you'd send a letter via a little guy who'd have a dugout canoe and he'd hopefully take it to a larger village and the chances of it getting back were, were, were slim. I mean, I was away a few weeks ago out in, in West Africa and I can video call you now and talk to you now. So it's definitely changed and, and that sort of feeling of connectedness, isn't it? Definitely, yeah. When you went to Madagascar the first time, seven weeks is a long while to worry about what you're doing and... 
there is that we can talk, but you can't have a hug. You can't no. sort of pat you on the leg or give you a hug or, or just that sort of close proximity. But I guess with these little things, this weird little bracelet, this haptic bracelet we're both wearing now, do you reckon that'll make a difference when I go away next time? Of course, certainly, yeah. I mean, uh, if I know you're tapping it and I feel it, I know you're all right. It's weird, isn't it? It's almost like a really simple little thing that we've gone from letters to phone calls to video calls, but the prospect of this little, this little touch, this sense of being able just to physically show I'm thinking of you. Yeah, well, for me, it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. OK, you're not going to be tapping this all the time, are you? No, yeah. <laughs> But is the technology actually a valuable next step in our move towards digital intimacy, or is it all a bit gimmicky? We'll find out a little bit later. In 1980, a life-changing art installation appeared on the streets of New York and Los Angeles. Suddenly, head-to-toe life-size television images of people on the opposite coast appeared. At first, passers-by were unsure what was happening. Who who are we talking to? Are they actors? They look like young people in the show. They're just people like you and me. My God, it looks like chorus line. They could now see, hear and speak with each other, as if encountering one another on the same sidewalk. Do we know what's going on? Do you know what's going on? No, not really. They're, They're in New York. They're in New York? I'm in Los Angeles, right? Are you? Yes. It was the first telecall, a primitive version of what we've come to see in Skype or Zoom. But for these people, it was revelatory. Ghislaine Boddington is a reader in digital immersion at the University of Greenwich and founder of Body Data Space. She spent the last 20 years researching body-responsive technologies and digital intimacy. The internet is an amazing utopic knowledge exchange tool that came to us in that point in time when there was not too many problems with it, was very much about um, exchanging intelligence, exchanging knowledge, um, and really about the brain linked to this new, amazing, um, connected, across-the-world scenario. And so I kept all the time working on how could we actually get the body, the physical body, engaged in this too. You talk about a natural progression here from quite quaint letter writing to suddenly a phone call to a text to to video call and suddenly you've got video conferencing as you say where you can talk to granny and granddad in australia or but this seems like a logical step-by-step process but you use the word intimate relationships there and i think that's something that already i'm looking ahead in slightly dubious ways I think there's a risk that we might lose the intimacy by developing virtual intimate relationships. Well, in the in the area of digital intimacy, the the first experimentation has happened through the one side has been performing arts and sciences. And then the second area of sectors that this work has been developed in, of course, has been porn and the um, sex industry. And we know telepresence has been used for that for uh, many years, as long as we've been using it to link up families. Yeah. And the the sex tech scene has been incredibly fast on evolving haptics and interfaces and connected toys for 
relationships that have to happen across the world, that have to happen at a distance. We are moving very fast, actually, towards uh, much more embedded technologies. And actually, in a way, this is part of what I call the embodiment of the of the Internet. It's the, it's the moves towards us actually being within the Internet as full bodies. Ghislaine has shown us how, for almost 40 years, technology has been exploring new platforms and ways of creating digitally intimate environments. But in recent years, we've also seen the emergence of a much more wearable, focused industry of intimate technology, based around touch and our reactions to it. We all know about the vibration that comes from our phones, but other types of haptic tools are trying to make our bodies feel unexpectedly different when it comes to touch. So, I'm going to sound slightly... <laughs> but um, I had to stop because I'm out on a run and suddenly my, my wrist started buzzing. My little uh, haptic bracelet started buzzing away and what's more, it started buzzing in a particular code, a code that my mum and I <laughs> have developed over the last couple of weeks. It's like a weird mother-son version of Morse code, but... Uh, you know what? It, it completely cheered me up. It completely made me smile to know that, know that uh, I was being thought of. And I have to admit, I've been a little bit cynical about this tech at times. But uh, it really, really brightened my day up. So, um, yeah, <laughs> nice. Madeleine Lay is a PhD candidate in technology, policy and management at the Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. She took me on a whirlwind tour of haptic technologies. A relational level, we have um, some touch bracelets that people wear around their wrists so that if you are in, a, say, a long distance relationship, that both partners will wear the bracelet and they can send sort of touch signals to each other throughout the day, say if they wanted to give support before an interview or something like this. Um, there's also VR glove and then excitingly there's, but there's movements also towards an investment and developments going into haptic body suits, which would encompass the whole body and, uh, really give you a sense in the VR world of moving, moving through and feeling things in a way that we do in a non-digital realm. So it seems almost we're at the, the forefront of, as you say, what might become a wholly immersive experience down the line in five or 50 years' time. But for now, I mean, right now, you and I are in different rooms, we're in different countries, even and yet we're communicating. I can't see you, and it would be great if you were sat opposite me and, and shake your hand this morning or give you a hug later if we get on and say goodbye. The moment we're at the level where a simple tapping on my wrist or a simple warmth on a glove that I'm wearing is 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 the best we can hope for and, and in some ways it'll have to do for now is that what you're saying yeah it'll it's necessarily limited right now and i think a really interesting question is to ask whether or not we even can get to a place where the fullness the full experience of interpersonal touch person to person touch can be replicated in a digital through di digital mediation. And I would argue, perhaps controversially, that that is not, maybe not possible, uh, and maybe not desirable either. But the potential of this technology won't just revolutionize everyday touch, but also our sex lives. 
there's a field called teledildonics. Yep, it's basically remote-controlled sex toys, which could add an element of spice to the future of remote touch. It seems that we're redefining what it means to have an intimate relationship and where those boundaries lie. So for me, where I currently think I would quite happily have an intimate relationship or even sex, technology seems to be blurring that line quite a lot. Is that fair to say that we're heading to a a new phase of intimacy here? Uh, Yes, Ben, I think that's correct. There is a sense in which we may be able to engage in sexual activities now that are between people who are spatially separated. Dr. Robbie Arrell is a lecturer in applied ethics at the University of Leeds. But previously, it seemed like there was no real possibility to have what you would consider, uh, let's say, for want of a better term, full-blown sex, if you were separated in time and space the way we are. Uh, And I think some of the technologies now that are coming online could change that. And I think that's really interesting from my perspective, because we're looking at quite a shift in definitions we can argue it's just semantics or whether it has real world implications but i think it does here but we're looking at what it means to be intimate what it means to have sex what it means to to touch someone as well so if i'm with someone whether it's a partner or a a one-off thing and we're in different countries and we we're both consensual is that having sex is that touching is that intimate uh yeah i think that is, I mean, traditional cyber sex was just a case of basically, you you know, where you might have phone sex or sexting, sex over Skype or webcam sex, right? But all of those types of, if you like, sounds like an odd term, but traditional cyber sex were basically uh, instances of solo self-masturbation, right? Because I tell you, Dodonics are basically just... Uh, internet-enabled remote-control sex devices or toys, right? But I guess to advance this technology, we're almost assuming that this will become some level of normal or some level of of, of widespread or it won't be unusual to say you had a, a, a sexual encounter in different countries or, or different continents even. How widespread do we think this might become? I'm not sure that I would go as far as to say that this will become the norm of how we kind of negotiate sexual intimacy in our relationships. There's a possibility that long-distance relationships may become more common or that the time we spend separated from people might in fact become more common I mean, we saw, like, there's plenty of research to suggest that the sales of these devices, uh, teledildonics, went through the roof during COVID. It will change love. It may change the way we love each other. It will change uh, the way we relate to each other, perhaps. Uh, It wouldn't necessarily change the way that, you know, I think that we value love. Um, That's going to be quite constant. And, you know, it's just another stage in uh, a long, you know, history of employing different technological or biotechnological means to try to enhance uh, love uh, relationships. In the future, haptic technologies could just change the way we feel about touch, but not just yet. However, they are posing some fun questions that are helping us as humans explore our digital selves possibly a little more than ever before. 
We've seen in this episode how, for me and Mum at least, it's provided a really lovely sense of remote presence with each other that we'd not experienced before. We've understood how touch affects our brain and could be vital to a more happy brain chemistry. And even explored how many of us might be able to expand our relationship with intimate relationships. I think that's quite enough for this week, don't you? In the fifth and last episode of Supersensors, we'll explore whether all the technology I've encountered so far might be able to make a superhuman me. How much can technology teach us and aid us in understanding ourselves? Could watches that sense our heart rate and stress levels make us better athletes? Can looking at our brainwaves help us be so much more productive at work? And when do we need to start booking in for that brain implant to make us our best selves? Whether you call it football or soccer in your part of the world, Match of the Day Africa Top 10 is the podcast bringing you the best of African football. I'm former Congolese captain Gabriel Zakwani, and joining me for hosting duties, Ivory Coast Yaya Toure. Hi, Yaya Toure, yeah. And Nigeria's Efen Okoku. Hi. Each week, we're trying to decide who makes it to number one on our African football top 10 list. That's Match of the Day Africa Top 10 from the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Wir von Enterprise Rent a Car passen unsere Mobilitätslösungen an Ihre geschäftlichen Anforderungen an, wie auch immer diese aussehen mögen. Ob Sie nun stundenweise Autos für Ihr Verkaufsteam brauchen, Wochen-, Monats- oder Jahreweise, Transporter für die Auslieferung Ihrer Produkte oder eine Flotte von Ersatzfahrzeugen für den Fall, dass Ihre Kunden Bedarf haben, Enterprise Rent a Car hat alles, was Sie benötigen. Und mit mehr Filialen an mehr Standorten auf der ganzen Welt sind wir überall dort, wo Sie uns suchen. Bei Enterprise.de finden Sie alles, was Sie brauchen. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Mosley and welcome to my new BBC Radio 4 podcast series, Stay Young. In each episode, I'll explore one simple, scientifically proven thing you can do to rejuvenate yourself from the inside out. Which will you try? Maybe a slice of mango to reduce your wrinkles. Mm, delicious. Or learning something new to stay sharp. Hi, okay. Hi, okay. How about lifting some weights to protect your muscles against the ravages of time? That was quite tough. To hear all about how to stay young, subscribe to the series wherever you get your podcasts.